Hello and welcome to episode two of Luther's Catechism Podcast, brought to you by The Way Church. I'm Pastor Matt Rothy. Luther's Catechism Podcast takes you, the listener, through Luther's small catechism in order to educate, encourage, and equip you in your Christian faith and for all your callings in life. We are in episode three, and this is the second of three introductory episodes where we are answering today the most important question a person can ask. How can I be confident that I am enough? How can I be confident that I am good enough to go to heaven after death? Now, in this introductory episode, uh, we are covering transitional material before we actually dive into the content or the six chief parts of the small catechism. The title for this episode is The Bible, The Truth About God and Us. The reason being is that it is in the Bible, in Scripture alone, where we find the answer to that all-important question of how you and I can be confident that we are enough, that we are good enough to go to heaven after death. If you're following along in your own Luther's Catechism book, we are on page 26. If you do not have a copy of this edition, you can purchase yours at the following web address, online.nph.net. And if you're curious to learn more about this edition of Luther's Catechism, please listen to our previous episode. So let's begin episode three. Like most Christians of his day, Luther had grown up with a serious misunderstanding regarding the answer to a very important question. How can we be confident that anyone is good enough to go to heaven after death? Now, for a long time, that question tormented him as he tried to find peace. The answer to that question eventually changed the direction of his life. That question is the most important question that you or I could ever ask. Now, because there is still so much confusion about the answer to that question, it's important that today you and I know the truth. In order to do that, we need to start from the beginning. We need to learn what God tells us about himself and ourselves, and God does that in his word. We're beginning with question one in our catechisms. Each one of these questions is, as we mentioned in previous episodes, individually numbered. So here's question one. Why should it be clear to everyone that there is a God? Now, that question has some assumptions behind it because you probably know people who deny that there is a God. They don't want to admit that there is a being who has power over them or to whom we are accountable. But in reality, it should be obvious that there is a God. Why? Why should that be clear to everyone? Well, let's look at our first passage. Psalm 19 says this, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies proclaim the works of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. Here's what we know. We know that because creation is beautiful, because there is sunsets that move people, because there is shooting stars that captivate our attention, we know that there is someone, something out there who is powerful. Well, that's God's creation. The works of his hands, as Psalm 19 says, declaring his glory. Now, 
What can we learn from the things he had been created? Well, that's question number two. The magnificent creation gives us merely a hint about the God who created all things. But what can we learn about God from these things? Romans chapter one. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Now, Paul is the writer to the Romans. So how is it that Paul can say that uh, creation, that which has been made, that is something that reveals God to us? Well, he goes on, he says, it's because God's creation reveals God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature. What he is saying is that people have a natural natural knowledge of God written in their hearts, and this is what is supplemented, giving us proof by looking around at the created world. Anyone can see from the world that, that there is something out there, they might say, something that is far greater than them, that has created all this, something that causes some natural processes to take place that, well, there must be something far greater than mere chance causing these to take place. What is that something? Well, we sense that power, that divine nature, and that is, again, giving us a hint that there's God. Psalm 14 says, only their fool says there is no God. And the reason is because passages like this remind us that we have been revealed by nature, a natural revelation, information about God, so that we are without excuse. Now, I used a phrase there, natural revelation. What does that mean? Well, as we've been speaking about it, it's that nature reveals something about us. It reveals something not rather about us, but about God, that there is a powerful being out there. But there's a second part to natural revelation that Scripture tells us about. It's not only that sunsets and, and shooting stars and, and other natural occurrences reveal God's power and his divine nature. It is also our conscience that tells us something about God. That's question number three. How does the conscience within us testify to the truth that there is a God? We look at Romans chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. When Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. All right, to get into this passage, what we need to do is take a closer look. And that leads us to our first closer look on page 27. Now, to understand what Paul is saying in this passage when he speaks about Gentiles, we need to know who he's comparing them to. In the verses leading up to that, he's differentiating between two groups of people, Jews and Gentiles. How did it come to be that there's these two different groups of people? Well, let's think in terms of salvation history. Because of God's great love for all people, he initiated a plan to save all people from the deadly consequences of their sins. Here's what we know from Bible history. The human race was extremely wicked. The people easily and quickly wandered away from God's promises and rebelled against God. But God planned to send a Savior for all people, and 
Part of that plan was setting aside the descendants of Abraham to carry out his plan. Everyone aside from these descendants of Abraham was considered a Gentile because the Savior of the world, which, yes, that world includes Gentiles, would come from the Jewish nation. God set the Jewish nation apart from all other nations. God gave the people of Israel laws to remind them of their special status. For example, they weren't to eat certain foods. They weren't to work on the Sabbath. They were to set the Sabbath day aside for worship. As they followed these laws, they would be reminded that they were recipients of a special promise from God. They were the nation from which the Savior would come. This helps us better understand Romans chapter 2. Here Paul reminds us in these verses that although Gentiles, that includes all non-Jewish people, although these people hadn't received the word of God and, and the laws of God, they were able to demonstrate that God's law had been written on their hearts. How so? Well, their consciences bore witness to the fact that there is a standard of right and wrong, a law for judging their lives and actions. Our consciences tell us the very same thing. You think about it. There are people all over the world who may or may not be Christians, but they agree on a standard of truth. Maybe they disagree how you would punish their certain crime, but let's use that a crime. For example, all people agree murder is wrong. Where did they come to decide this? Well, it is from our consciences. Okay, so here's a little bit more about consciences as we consider this. Our consciences operate on feelings, and our consciences operate on the innate feelings that we have where there are certain natural rules to be followed, certain things that should be done and other things that should not be done. How does a person's conscience judge them? Well, when our consciences don't feel that we are acting rightly or we feel bad when we know we've done wrong, hey, there is our conscience accusing us. Our conscience is doing something that is either opposite of what we know should be done or we are doing something that should not be done. Everyone is familiar with that guilty feeling. And what are we standing guilty before? Again, this goes back to the bigger picture here. What is our conscience revealing? That there is a God. Now, this leads us to another question. If nature can reveal certain things from us, from the world around us, we can learn that there's a powerful being who created everything. And from within our hearts, our consciences, we learn that this powerful creator wants us to act a certain way. Well, this natural revelation, that's available to everyone. So why do we need the Bible? Well, next question would be, why are there so many religions that try to teach people how to have a good relationship with God, try to teach people about Oh, here's that question again. Am I good enough to go to heaven after I die? Well, that is why we need the Bible. We've been talking about natural revelation. We're now going to talk about God's special revelation that comes only through the Bible. That is only through scripture. Do we learn that we will never be able to fix our relationship with God by ourselves, but it's only through his gracious gift of his son and Jesus's life and death that we are saved. 
When it comes to our salvation, God deals with us and proclaims his plan of salvation only through his word. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. What no eye has seen and what no ear has heard and what no human mind has conceived, these things God has prepared for those who love him. These are the things that God has revealed to us by his spirit. Okay, so what this passage is saying here is that we could not imagine on our own the good things that this God who created the whole world, who who wants us to do right things, again, natural revelation, creation, our consciences, what we could never imagine from our minds is how God in Christ has redeemed us how God has given to us his son's righteousness, how God has given to us the gift of heaven. Our next passage is Romans chapter 10, verse 14. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? What we know from Romans chapter 10 is that we just can't. We can't believe in God. We can't have trust that he has redeemed us without someone proclaiming his message of salvation, his gospel to us. And he has done that in his word. Okay, now I've kind of given it away already as as we've talked about God's special revelation, but what we're going to do in the next part of this episode is talk about what specifically the Bible reveals or what special revelation tells us. And what we know is that it reveals the two main teachings of God's word, the law, which, as I said before, we'll look at much more in depth in our next episode, the law and the gospel. First, we look at the law with question number five. According to the Bible, what has spoiled my relationship with God? Genesis 6 verse 5 tells us, The Lord God saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Romans 3.23, All have sinned and fall short, of the glory of God. Romans 7, verse 18. I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. Psalm 51, verse 15. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. We're answering the question, what has spoiled my relationship with God? In short, it's sin. It's me. It's the sin that lives in me. But what these passages show us is that sin is not only the the wrong things that I do, but it's everything, everything about me. Genesis 6, every inclination of our thoughts is our evil. Good doesn't dwell in me at all, Romans 7. And what's more, surely I was sinful from birth, from the time my mother conceived me. I don't just do sin. I have sin throughout me completely. My nature is sinful. That's what these passages teach us, spoiled a relationship with God. So what is the result of this sin in my life? Isaiah 59 verse 2. Your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have removed his face from you so that he will not hear. Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. Ephesians 2 verse 3, 
all of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. What is the result of sin in my life? These passages tell us. First of all, it negatively affects our relationship with God. Our sins have separated us from God. But more than that, the wage of sin is death. What our sins earn is death. We're deserving of God's wrath. Now, this closer look, this next, this next aside helps us really take that a step further and understand how sin has totally destroyed our relationship with God. Our sinful nature produces evil thoughts, words, and actions that defile us. To defile means to make unclean or to contaminate. And God is holy and perfect. He can't stand our sin. Our sin is repulsive to God. And so he tells us that we deserve death because of our sins. Now, if you've ever experienced losing someone to death, you know the consequence of sin, which is death, is horrible. But sin brings more than just physical death. It brings eternal, spiritual death. And that is what Isaiah 59 brought out, that your sin separates you from God. And Romans 6 Because we sin, we deserve wrath. That is God's anger and his punishment. Okay, now I said what we're doing in this, the remainder of this episode is exploring what the Bible reveals. That is what God's special revelation is. And I said that is both law and gospel. And in these last two questions, questions five and six, we explored the law. The law tells us that we are sinful. It tells us the results of our sinful. Fullness. And now we get to look in question seven at the gospel. Now, while my sin has separated me from God and has caused me to earn God's wrath and eternal death, what does God tell you and me in his word that brings peace to my relationship with him? We read 1 Timothy 2, verse 4 God wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. What brings us peace? First, it's this. It's that God desires. His deep longing is for all people. It's for all people to come to a knowledge of the truth. So what did God do about that? John 3, 16. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. What did God give us? God gave us the gift of his son so that we wouldn't die. Romans 6.23, we read it before, but here's the rest of the verse. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Friends, this is the gospel. This is the good news that brings us peace. It's the gospel. It's the good news that God has given us his son. The good news that God wants us to be his very own, that is his desire. God wants all people to be saved. And so he's given us a gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus. Now, I keep using this word gospel. What does it mean? Well, it's a term that comes from the Greek word oiangelion. And that word means good news. Specifically, it's the good news that God gives to humans. You might be hearing this and you think, well, this good news sounds too good to be true. Question eight, can I trust what the Bible tells me? 2 Peter 1 verse 16 says this. 
We did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Okay, so here, just just to note, the apostle Peter is writing 2 Peter, and he's saying, you can trust what I'm writing is true because I saw it. Now, if you're following along in your catechism, you'll notice that, that 2 Peter chapter 1 also came up on page 28. We didn't read it before, but now I'd like to read that whole section of 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 19, because it answers so beautifully the question of how can I trust that what the Bible tells me is true? We read verse 16, but I'll read it again. Peter writes, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. Okay, pause here. The apostle Peter is recounting what took place at the transfiguration, that he was in fact there seeing God transfigured in Christ Jesus and hearing God's voice from heaven. Now he goes on to say this, we also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Okay, now this idea we're going to unpack as we continue on with this episode, that we can trust God's word. Why? Because there was witnesses, as Peter said. Secondly, that this never came about by a person's own understanding of the events that were happening. No, but this came about by the Spirit of God revealing things to the prophets and the evangelists, those who wrote the Bible. That's our next passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. What we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. All right, here's what we know. These words didn't come to the Bible writers on their own, but they were revealed to them by the Spirit. And Jesus himself promised that these words are trustworthy and true. Matthew 24, verse 35, Christ said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. All right, so the Bible itself tells us that we can trust what the Bible tells us is true. But some people may still be skeptical. You might say, yeah, but how can the words of the Bible really be God's if human writers wrote them? Now, we touched on this with the passage we read from 2 Peter just a moment ago. But here in question number nine, we read more. Jesus promised us that we could trust these words because they weren't from human writers. They were revealed. They were taught by the Holy Spirit. John 14, verse 26. 
the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. In 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, the Apostle Paul writes, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. What we know is that, that the Spirit himself breathed into the human writers the very words that they were to write and speak. That is the confidence that we can have, that you can have every time that you pick up your Bible on your own, that this is God's word and, and you can trust that what the Bible, what God is telling you in his word is true. So by now you should know why the Bible is so important, but that is question 10. Why is the Bible so important? Let's summarize. 2 Timothy 3 verse 15 says, From infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Why is scripture so important? Because it communicates to you salvation. It makes you wise for salvation. Something that nature, something that your conscience, something that natural revelation could never do, scripture does. It shows you who has saved you. It shows you your Savior. The ending of John's gospel couldn't be more perfect. John 20, verse 31. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The ending of John couldn't be a more perfect answer to why the Bible, why these words written are so important. They are so that you may believe, that you and I might know for a fact that Jesus is our Savior and that by believing in Him, we may have eternal life in His name. That's question 10. And that is the second to last question that we have in this lesson. There is just one more. And it comes with a warning. The warning is, is involving God's Word. What does God forbid anyone to do with His Bible? Well, God does have warnings about his word because God's word is so important. It tells us about our salvation. God wants all people of all time to know about the salvation he gave. So in summary, here's God's warning. Don't add to God's word. Don't subtract to God's word. And don't multiply lies or make up rules with God's word. We look at, at God's word that, that warns us in this way. Deuteronomy 4 verse 2 says, Do not add to what I command you and do not subtract from it, but keep the commands of the Lord your God that I give you. Revelation 22, the last chapter of the Bible, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this scroll. If anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this scroll. And if anyone takes away words from the scroll of prophecy, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this scroll. And finally, Jesus says in Matthew 15, verse 9, they worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. That is, I guess, my way of summarizing that passage is don't multiply the errors that that People make up from God's word by adding to it or subtracting to it. Don't make up a set of rules or a set of beliefs or a religion. Don't make up a religion based on God's words that is just that, merely 
human rules. Okay, so this is the first lesson, and we're going to close out with a sum- another summary, a closer look at the books of the Bible. The Bible itself contains a total of 66 separate books divided into two parts, the Old and the New Testament. What we know is that God revealed the Old Testament to the world before the coming of Jesus, and it was written by Moses and the prophets. God revealed the New Testament to the world after Jesus, and it was written by the apostles and evangelists. All the writers of the Bible were inspired by the Holy Spirit. So their messages, those are God's words, true and reliable. And both the Old Testament and the New Testament teach the two main principles or doctrines that we discussed in this lesson. The first is the law, which tells us what we must do and not do. The second main teaching of the Bible is the gospel, which tells us what God has done for us in giving us a Savior. This gospel is the good news. We'll close our our episode with a Connections closing devotion. When Luther discovered the answer to that all-important question about how we can have a good relationship with God and be confident that we will be in heaven when we die, it changed his life. It also helped him understand the message of the entire Bible because there was so much confusion and misunderstanding. He knew it was vitally important to teach these truths to the world. That was the reason for the small catechism. He wanted a book that could be used to teach these important life-saving truths to future generations. He knew these truths would change our lives as well. Luther saw how important it was and still is to listen to God's word. So what we're going to do right now is read Acts chapter 17 verses 10 through 12 and read about a group of people who eagerly used the scriptures. Acts 17 says this, As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, Many of them believed, and as did a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. Here end God's word. As you look at that passage, what is it that made Berean Jews so, so noble, so noble in character? Well, it's because they search the scriptures daily with great eagerness. They examined the scriptures, and, and they did it in such a way to see that if what Pastor Paul was teaching them was really true. Why was it so important to know if Paul spoke the truth? Why is it so important for me and you to know the truth? Well, it's because of the life and death nature of what the Bible com- communicates to us, that, that, that sinfulness separates us from God eternally. Eternal death is the wage or the result of our sin. And yet, Scripture proclaims the life-saving message that Christ died for sinners, you and me, so that we might have peace with God and, and heaven as a gift. What can make it hard is a question that we have to consider. What can make it hard for us to be like the Bereans that we read about here? Well, there's so many, so many doubts that, and different voices other than Scripture in our world that, that tell us, oh, we, we can't trust God. 
Maybe, maybe it's even our own consciences, lies of Satan, looking to, to dull our conscience to say, no, that's not true, or, or you shouldn't do this, or you should do that. It's doubts that come from within and without that can make it hard to be like the Bereans. But what can we do to follow the example of the Bereans? Well, we can note what they did. And daily, they took everything captive to Scripture to see if even even what a pastor, even what Paul had to come and preach was true. Because because Scripture is true and, and there is no message that can stand up against it. Luther knew this, and and we read one of his quotes to close. He said this, Let us learn the art of letting the world boast of great wealth, honor, power, etc. After all, these are light, unstable, perishable commodities which God throws away. But to his children, he gives the true treasure. Therefore, as dear children and heirs of God, we should not boast of our wisdom, strength, or wealth. We should boast of the fact that we have the precious pearl, the dear word through which we know God, our dear Father and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. This is our treasure and heritage. It is certain and eternal and better than the goods of all the world. End quote. As a closing prayer, we will say the song, the hymn, One Thing's Needful. One thing's needful, Lord, this treasure Teach me highly to regard. All else, though it first give pleasure, is a yoke that presses hard. Beneath it, the heart is still fretting and striving, no true lasting happiness ever deriving. This one thing is needful, all others are vain. I count all but loss that I, Christ, may obtain. Amen. This is Luther's Catechism Podcast. Thank you so much for being here with us on the second episode. I hope that God's Word worked to educate, encourage, and equip you here in your Christian faith and for all your callings in life. We'll see you next time.